You may be seated. Good morning. For those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is George Quarles, and I am famously known as Megan's husband. Uh, Yeah. Sorry, I'm trying to get a timer set up here so I don't go over. I may have done that before. Um, yeah, welcome this morning. Uh, you know, as we as we go into this lament service, huh? Take my mask off. She's right. You get so used to it, especially when you have to wear it at work. Um, before we go, uh, you know, into this this lament service that our MRJR team has very skillfully put together for us, uh, we wanted to provide an overview of what what lamenting is. Uh, you know, Travis mentioned this is a new concept, uh, but it is a very biblical one, and we and, and we wanted to set aside, you know, 10, 15 minutes. It's going to be a very brief, high-level overview of what lamenting is. Um, and and I know that, you know, to, to disambiguate a little bit, I, I think some of us think of different things when we think of lamenting. You know, some of, my, some of us might think a lament is a sad song, a song that's just generally sad or, or, or you know, kind of down or... Or maybe, maybe you think a lament is a confession, like David's famous Psalm 51, you know, cleanse me and I will be clean, wash me and I'll be white as snow. Um, but lament is actually beyond, uh, you know, those concepts, although it can include them, and is ultimately a, a, a way of addressing the question with God. And again, as, as Travis really set this up, how do we interact with God when things go wrong, Right? How do we approach God with this? How do we approach God when our our countries, our communities, even our personal lives are racked with divisiveness, with hatred, with fear, with lies, with propaganda, institutionalized oppression and discrimination, when our individual lives are falling apart, when whole nations are falling apart? It's, It's the whole scope. When things go wrong, how do we come to our Creator? Um, and thankfully, we have a rich heritage of what I might call faithful protest uh, by uh, God followers throughout history, by prophets, by psalmists, by David, by Asaph, by the sons of Korah. You know, I was reading through some of their psalms. I was like, I'd like to meet those guys. We don't know much about them, but they wrote some really good psalms. Um, ultimately, and, and lament is the answer to that question. How do we approach God? How do we approach God with, uh, uh, you know, things that are wrong in our lives in the world? And, and ultimately, what we see in Scripture is that lament is an expression of prayer and, and request that God intervene when life is not as it should be. It is the intersection in prayer between the ideals of who God is on the one hand. You're, you're magnificent. You're the creator. And boots on the ground over here here's what I'm experiencing, right? It acknowledges dissonance in who you are, what you've promised, and what I'm experiencing. Um, It expresses incongruity with the expectations of what God should do in your life personally, in your community's life, in your country's life. You know, what we, we have these thoughts, we have these expectations, and a lament is saying, hey, we've heard this from you, and now here's what we're experiencing, Sometimes uh, a, a prayer can take a tone of a very sad, despondent, maybe depressed person like David in Psalm 6. He says, I'm worn out from sobbing 
all night I flood my bed with weeping. It's a bit of a hyperbole, but he's getting a point across, right? Like, I am this depressed. I am this broken, drenching it with my tears. My vision, verse 7, is blurred by grief. My eyes are worn out because of all of my enemies. Um, So sometimes we see this sad expression that that maybe came to your mind when we said, hey, we're doing a lament service. Oh, it's going to be sad songs. But beyond sadness, a lament is always a protest or a complaint that actively expects intervention and a good resolution from God. a, A fundamental aspect of lamenting is we believe God is active in this world and we believe we can come to him and expect him to work in our lives according to his character. Listen to an example of, uh, of this complaint from Psalm 31. Oh, Lord, I have come to you. Why? For protection. Don't let me be disgraced. Save me, for you do what is right. Turn your ear. Listen to me. Rescue me. When? You know, at the end of my life? No, quickly. Rescue me now, he says in verse 2. Be my rock of salvation. Later, the MRJR team is going to lead us in Psalm 44. Listen to these verses from that. Wake up, O Lord. Why do you sleep? Get up. Do not reject us forever. Verse 26. Rise up. Help us. Ransom us because of your unfailing love. It's an, it's an active request for an active response. Uh, when, when the people of God experience dissonance in their lives. And sometimes... Um, sometimes this, uh, you know, with lament, they express guilt uh, and asks for forgiveness. And that's maybe something that we're a little bit more familiar with, right? Like I referenced Psalms, Psalm 51, you know, wash me and I'll sh- I shall be clean, David says. You know, I've sinned before you, cl- cleanse me and I'll be white as snow. But much more often in laments than, than a confession, we see the, the protester, the, the, the person, the prayer, the person writing this poem saying, hey God, I'm righteous, not in the sense that I'm perfect, not in the sense that I'm sinless, because sometimes we can hear that and say, and our, our, our Christian ears go off and say, well, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? That's not what we're talking about here. They say, hey God, I have lived my life according to your purposes. I've committed myself to you, and therefore I need you to guarantee my life. I've chosen the righteous path. I've chosen not to gain through abuse of power. I've chosen not to abuse, you know, my employees. For those of you who who own businesses or employ other people, I've chosen not to exploit people to get what I have. No, I've chosen your path, God. I'm yours. Listen to Psalm 17. Oh, Lord, hear my plea for justice. Listen to my cry for help. You have tested my thoughts and examined my heart Um, in the night, you have scrutinized me and found nothing wrong. You've scrutinized me and found nothing wrong. I'm determined not to sin in what I say. I have followed your commands, which keeps me from following cruel and evil people. My steps have stayed on your path. I'm praying to you, he says in verse 6, because I know you will answer. It's not, hey God, I'm perfect, therefore you owe me. It's God, I am in a relationship with you. I've dedicated myself to you. We have a covenant relationship I need your help. I could get what I need maybe by unjust ways, but no, I'm coming to you and saying, I need your deliverance. I need your assistance. I need you to come and intervene. And so in that sense, lament takes place within a covenantal context, right? This is not just, hey, we're going to hurl accusations at God, you know, willy-nilly. This is the people of God who have already committed to God, coming to God saying, we need you. We need you. In our lives, and uh, I'm going to walk us through real quickly uh, the three 
stages that we see often in a lament. And the first one deals exactly with that covenant relationship that we have with God. And that's in the address, uh, you know, the, the opening of the prayer. Uh, and we'll have, yeah, we'll have that up on the screen. Um, so in the address, most often you'll see the psalmist use the covenant name of God. You may have heard it. In your Bibles, it's usually LORD in all caps, right? It kind of sticks out on the page. Uh, and in Hebrew, it's, it's Yahweh is what we think it is. It's how we think it was written. Yahweh is the covenant name that God revealed to Moses, you know, when he passed in front of him. Yahweh, Yahweh, gracious and merciful in Exodus 34. And so the psalmist immediately invoke that covenantal context because that's what creates the expectations and the framework of what the relationship that we have with God is. Strange as that may be to think about, but, you know, just as we have expectations in a relationship between husband and wife or between friends or between coworkers, there, there, there are standards that set up our expectations. And so we have, and, and prophets and priests and, and our predecessors in the Bible have expectations that they have with God that God has set and that they have set, right? In that sense, it's, a, it's very much a partnership in that, in that sense. Um, and so just like in a marriage, you know, if you never, if, if you were married to your partner and you never engaged in conflict and you never hashed out hurts and you just keep saying, oh, it'll all work out in the end, oh, it's all going to be fine, then you're not engaging in a meaningful relationship, are you? Right? No, no, no actual marriage could function without meaningful communication, without sharing hurts, without sharing how expectations aren't being met. And so similarly in Scripture, we see the people of God, we see these prophets and kings and everybody come to God and lay out their needs and say, I'm hurting. I need help. I feel lonely, even abandoned. And they come to God with that. They say, I feel abandoned by you. Where are you in our relationship right now? And so... As we think about how we might set up, you know, how, how we might approach this today, you know, how we might, how we might take what we see in, in, in Scripture and say, okay, what, what, is the rela- what is the framework that I have uh, in my life, you know, for, with, with God? What is the framework of our relationship, you know, that I have through Jesus? Um, and I wrote down some examples just to kind of start stirring people's minds as, we, as we're about to go through this process. You know, how can we think about this today? And you can, and you can start with the question, what have I been promised? Um, you know, Jesus said, I will be with you always at the end of Matthew. And John, the Father will give you the Holy Spirit to advocate, to comfort, and to help. In, in 2 Timothy, Paul says, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. My peace I leave with you, says Jesus. I will write my law on your hearts, says Yahweh and Jeremiah. I will guide you in the way you should go in songs. And so we see these promises from God. We see God communicating with us. Hey, here's what I'm going to do for you, my followers. We just went through the fruit of the Spirit, the sermon series uh, uh, that, that Travis led us in. You know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Okay, so the Holy Spirit's going to give me this stuff, right? And these together form a framework of expectations that we have for our relationship with God. And so what happens when those expectations aren't being met? And what do we do when things go wrong? And the answer is we lament. We lament. So the address in these Psalms creates that framework. It acknowledges that framework. Yahweh, we are in a covenant relationship. And when they read through Psalm 44, you'll see it lists out all the good things, all the saving things that you've done, God. This is who you are. Now step two, 
here's where we sense, here's where dissonance exists in our relationship. Here's where boots on the ground. We understand that you're in heaven, you're holy, you're powerful, you're our creator. Boots on the ground, here's what we're experiencing. And that takes us to the second part of the psalm, the complaint. And so, with the complaint, briefly, uh, and and for the purposes of what we're about to walk through this morning, um, I want to note that the types of things that we see in psalms uh, and there are, there are a multitude of lament psalms, more than one-third, the majority, in fact, the majority of psalms in the book of psalms are laments, believe it or not. Um, and there is, because of that, a broad array of complaints that we see. Sometimes it's a personal injustice. Uh, orphans and widows appealing to Yahweh, appealing to the highest court in the land, right? Okay, well, these courts are oppressing us, Yahweh. We need your help. Hey, you said we'd be taken care of. Well, your people aren't taking care of us. Sometimes it's societal injustice, Corrupt economic systems, abuse of foreigners and people of different ethnic groups, underpaid workers. You see this all the time throughout prophets such as Habakkuk, Amos, and Isaiah. Personal humiliation, physical harm, sin, and the need for forgiveness. We're familiar with that, right? God, I I need you to forgive me because I've sinned. Um, Deep depression and grief, like we read in Psalm 6 with David. Even, Even ethical and philosophical Questions. Why do the wicked prosper while the righteous suffer? Asks Asaph in Psalm 73. And there are many more examples. So this isn't a one-size-fits-all type of, you know, check these boxes in order to lament properly. But instead, consider your relationship with God. Consider who he is and your expectations. What he said he will do for you. And what you've st- how you've committed your life to him in response And then bring that to him. Hey, here is what I'm dealing with. Here's where I'm sensing mismatch, and I don't know what this is. And so amidst this breadth of complaints that we see in Scripture, they they all share some characteristics that I want you to keep in mind as we go through this process together with the MRJR team. And that is that they're honest, they're specific, and they're bold. And to give an example of this, uh, we went through a couple of verses in Psalm 13 and did an exercise that you might be familiar with uh, if you've done an inductive Bible study, kind of an I am, God is, right? Write the truths of God from this verse. Write the truths of, of uh, humans from this verse. Well, listen to the first two verses of Psalm 13. Oh, Lord, how long will you forget me? Forever? How long will you look the other way? How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul, with sorrow in my heart every day? How long will my enemy have the upper hand? And so if we say God is in this verse, according to the psalmist, verse 1, God is delayed. God is delayed. Lord, how long will you forget me? God is forgetful. God is maybe uninterested is the word we would look. How long will you look the other way? How long must I, now let's get to the I statements, how long must I struggle with anguish in my soul? I'm anxious. I'm depressed with sorrow in my heart. Every day, 24-7. How long must my enemy have the upper hand? I am defeated. I'm losing. I'm losing right now, God, says David, and I need your help. And so a, so a fundam, so what we see is a fundamental relational, truth-telling relationship between God and his people. And, to, and, and just to reiterate, this isn't a cynical, let's bash God, but it is a desperate cry for help because boots on the ground, it seems like you're absent, and God, we need you. I'm committed to you. And I need you. And so I want to conclude this section with, with this encouragement as, you, as, you, as we go through this journey together and as you go through this journey individually. Um, 
naming has power. Naming injustice and trauma is the first and one of the most critical steps to take on the journey toward justice, forgiveness, and reconciliation. And lament provides us with a vehicle to both name individual and communal, communal and societal injustices. And it lets the church be directly a vehicle for truth-telling uh, and reconciliation in their communities on this very public worship service that we engage in every Sunday morning, right? We, we get to be truth-tellers. And then the final, uh, the final section of, uh, of, of the psalm is the expression of trust. And most lament psalms end with an expression of trust that basically outlines God even after this very honest, very raw complaint that we have brought to you. We believe that you hear us. We believe in your faithfulness. We believe that you will answer. And so, you know, to wrap up that Psalm 13, God is, I am exercise. Uh, we see at the end of the psalm, David expresses, you know, after saying you're absent, I need you, all the stuff that we read earlier, he says you're kind, you're a rescuer, you're generous. And so at the same time, we see that it's not just God, hey, what's going on, but God, hey, I need your help and I trust you, I believe you, I'm coming to you to intervene in my life. And as we, as we transition now to the MRJR team and they're going to come up and lead us through this service, I want to... I want to leave you with, uh, with the encouragement of this. This tone of prayer may feel unfamiliar, and this may feel a little stretching for you. Uh, but consider, consider that this is your heritage from the prophets and psalmists who came before us, from these people who followed God with their lives, just as we're following it with our lives right now. And they have given us this massive library of expression of raw honesty with God and God's response to these prophets and priests and psalmists and kings and all these people who wrote these laments to him, it was not to turn them away. It was not to say, oh no, you're not speaking the right way I told you to, or you're not, you're not using the right words. No, he accepts and he engages and he answers. And it's not always the answer that you expect, but he answers. Um, to put it in another way, one of my favorite quotes about this is God would prefer to suffer our outrage than tolerate our apathy. And so the MRJR team is going to come up and lead us now uh, in, in some sections. And as they do, uh, I want you to consider that uh, there's three different people coming up. They're bringing three perspectives and three journeys of faith that they have been on as a group, very intentionally engaging this, this uh, topic of racial injustice in our world and in our country and in our city. Um, and, and they have been pursuing the truth. And, that, and, and what you're going to hear, the content you're going to hear, is born out of that very sincere heart uh, to pursue uh, reconciliation. Um, and, my se and my last encouragement is this. Don't spectate this. Experience it. Participate. If it's uncomfortable, be uncomfortable. But engage God with this real honesty as we uh, go through this process as a church together. Um, so uh, if the MRJR team will come up, then uh, we'll get started. Thank you so much, George. Um, my name is Janae, and this is Joe and Andrew, and we are three members of uh, the Eastside MRJR group. So the Ministry of Racial Justice and Reconciliation, which is what MRJR stands for, 
um, is a, a committee that has um, is present on all Bethany campuses, and so this is the uh, guiding statement for Bethany Community Church. At Bethany Community Church, we believe all humans are image bearers of God, and diversity is God's very good design. Therefore, we strive to stop racism and see God's image in all people, including all varieties of bodies, skin color, ethnicity, national origin, language, faith, and citizenship status. Jesus Christ is ultimately the one who breaks down dividing walls to dismantle racism. At the same time, Jesus calls and equips his followers to be his co-agents of reconciliation and justice. Toward this end, Bethany Community Church has made racial justice and reconciliation a strategic priority and established the Ministry of Racial Justice and Reconciliation in order to build a long-term community of reconciliation that restores broken relationships and systems. At our campus, we have a team of six to eight people who have been meeting since the summer of 2020. During this time, we have read and discussed two books, Rediscipling the White Church from Chief Diversity to True Solidarity by David W. Swanson, and So You Want to Talk About Race by Hijioma Aluau. We also spent time on developing our vision with the help of some racial justice advisors. And right now, a big part of our vision is to get more involvement for our congregation. So that's you. Uh, we encourage you guys to please join us, and you can talk to the three of us um, after the service, or you can email Andrew, um, Andrew Parkins, well, one at gmail.com. Now we're entering into uh, kind of the first section of address. Um, uh, we have split the lament process today into three movements. Uh, this first movement is called the address. As Christians, uh, we know that God has made a covenantal relationship with us, and with God's covenant comes many promises. Relationships require two-way communication. So in this address portion of the service, we will address those promises and ask God to fulfill them. The first eight verses of Psalm 44 address our covenant with God and the promises we have been given. Now the reading of Psalm 44, 1 through 8. We have heard it that our ears, or with our ears, O oh God, our ancestors have told us what you did in their days, in days long ago. With your hand you drove out the nations and planted our ancestors. You crushed the peoples and made our ancestors flourish. It was not by their sword that they won the land, nor did their arm bring them victory. It was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your face, for you loved them. You are my king and my God, who decrees victories for Jacob. Through you, we push back our enemies. Through your name, we trample our foes. I put no trust in my bow. My sword does not bring me victory, but you give us victory over our enemies. You put our adversaries to shame. In God, we make our boast all day long, and we will praise your name forever.
This is the point of uh, the prayer of address. Father, we know that you are a God of justice. We know that you're a God of mercy, fairness, and equality. You've made a number of promises to us in your word, which we're grateful for. And yet, when we look around us, we do not see those promises being kept. We do not see justice. We see a lot of injustice. We see the antithesis of justice and equality and fairness. So, Lord, today we're going to be just holding out before you what's on our hearts, our feelings, towards you and towards each other. But we're grateful, Lord, that we have the sort of relationship and intimacy with you that that sort of prayer is accepted and welcomed and that you hear it, that we can have that sort of connection with you, Lord. So we thank you for hearing us today. And may this time be used for your glory. Throughout our morning today, we'll be periodically taking a moment of silent individual prayer. Um, as we do so, I would just encourage everybody to just observe the emotions, the response, and just allow that emotion that you're feeling to influence your individual prayer. So we'll take a moment for silent prayer. We're going to do the second movement, complaint. Um, and in this movement, we, we've already acknowledged God's promises. Um, and so now we're going to address the ways we aren't seeing those fulfilled. We do this because there is power in naming injustice um, and trauma. It's the most critical step on the journey toward justice, forgiveness, and reconciliation. God can handle our complaint. Some tips for doing this well um, are to be honest and specific. This might look like, God, you said blank, but I'm, I'm experiencing blank instead. So Joe's going to read the part of our psalm that addresses these, uh, the psalmist's complaint. This is Psalm chapter 44, verses 9 through 25. 
But now you have rejected and humbled us. You no longer go out with our armies. You made us retreat before the enemy, and our adversaries have plundered us. You gave us up to be devoured like sheep and have scattered us among the nations. You sold your people for a pittance, gaining nothing from their sale. You have made us a reproach to our neighbors, the scorn and derision of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, and people shake their head at us. I live in disgrace all day, and my face is covered with shame at the taunts of those who reproach and revile me. Because of the enemy who was bent on revenge. All this has come upon us, though we had not forgotten you. We had not been false to your covenant. Our hearts had not turned back. Our feet had not strayed from your path. But you crushed us and made us a haunt for jackals. You covered us over with deep darkness. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God have discovered it? since he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake, Lord. Why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? We are brought down to the dust. Our bodies cling to the ground. Okay, so we are each now going to share um, a personal testimony and complaint as it has to do with um, racial injustice. So for me, um, I have always loved studying history, um, I particularly U.S. history. Um, I got to major it in it in college, and I now have the privilege of teaching seventh graders in the Lake Washington School District U.S. history. Um, but as I've studied our country's history, I've had to get, grapple with the tension of this being a great country and also a country that has caused and perpetuated many injustices. So even before our founding, there were great injustices done by the colonizers to the indigenous populations of this continent, as well as the trade, transport, and enslavement of Africans. Those were injustices our founders were aware of, and it is well documented that they debated how to address particularly the institution of slavery. We can look to two of our founding documents, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, um, to see evidence of these debates. Um, so the Declaration of Independence, after kind of the well-known intro, it contains 27 grievances against King George III and Great Britain. Um, but one grievance was drafted and then not included in the final list, and that one was about slavery. Um, so I'm going to read the original text of that grievance. It says, King George III has raged cruel war against human nature itself, violating its most sacred rights of life and liberty in the persons of a distant people who never offended him. 
captivating and carrying them into slavery in another hemisphere, or to incur miserable death in their transportation hither. These disgraceful practices are the warfare of the, and there's emphasis here, are the warfare of the Christian king of Great Britain. He has stopped the attempt to prohibit or restrain the disgusting business of slavery. He is determined to keep an open market where men are bought and sold. So I'm not sure why this grievance did not make it into the final copy of the declaration, but I do know that Jefferson, its author, owned slaves himself. So that might give us an indication as to why it was removed. So 13 years after the signing of the Declaration, our Constitution was ratified. Um, And history has also documented that slavery was a major debate at the Constitutional Convention. Um, Generally, northern delegates wanted to end slavery, but southern delegates, um, having an economy really reliant on the institution, um, did not. So in order to ratify the Constitution, um, the founders sought many compromises um, and ultimately did not choose to end the practice of slavery in our country. Uh, one such, co- such compromise was the three-fifths compromise, where slaveholding states were allowed to count three-fifths of their enslaved population toward representation in Congress. So I study these founding decisions every year with my seventh graders, um, and it always feels so unsatisfying. <laughs> We can look back now and see the consequences of those decisions throughout the history of our country and even today. So I'm going to share a personal prayer of lament, and then um, my colleagues are also going to share. My personal prayer of complaint is this. Lord, why did you allow enslavers to prosper off the injustices done to the enslaved? Why did the founders consider the right thing to do, but ultimately did not do it? We were supposed to be a God of justice, but I can't find justice in this history. Racial injustice started a long time ago, but it is not something like smallpox uh, that is just ancient history no longer impacting us today. Uh, Perhaps much of what I am about to say is something you may have heard of in bits here and there, but for me at least, uh, it is something that until recently, it wasn't until recently, uh, that I heard these things in such a way that something went click in my mind so that I could see the bigger picture and connect the dots. As white people, it can feel like racism, racism isn't really an issue anymore, even when we even when we consciously know that racism is still a powerful force for evil in the world around us. This is one of the most pervasive aspects of white privilege, which is that as white people, we do not have to look at the problem. We don't directly experience it, so we can just look away. But while our emotions can pretend that racism is like smallpox, just a part of history, not something we need to care about anymore, We also, at the same time, know that our emotions are mistaken. While I am personally still stuck in cognitive dissonance, knowing but not feeling the significance of racism, one of the most powerful forms of imagery I have seen to at least help me, my conscious mind, understand the magnitude of the problem 
is to trace through the history and see how racism has been there every step of the way and how I stand today perpetuating racial injustice. For more than 200 years through slavery, black people's work created wealth for the white people. After slavery was abolished in 1865, there was legal discrimination against people of color for another 100 years. This legal discrimination included many different things, but notably a process called redlining with black people. Even if they had good credit, they would not be given loans or would be given loans uh, with larger interest rates. This was actually just one form of redlining, and there were many others. Others involving denying services and resources to black communities. In 1968, many of the forms of overt intentional discrimination were made illegal, though many forms of discrimination continue today. So we have this ongoing legacy of injustice visited upon people of color that started with 200 plus years of slavery followed by 100 years of legal discrimination leading up to the ongoing, though perhaps less overt, discrimination we have seen over the last 50 years. One end effect of all this is seen in the wealth gap between white and black households, where the average wealth of white households is more than four times that of black households. As white people, we have inherited the wealth built over the centuries from black communities. And I am a perfect example of this. Please join me now in prayer, calling out to God. Lord, we know you are just, but we want to see your justice in the world around us. Why don't you step in and heal the vast brokenness in this world? Why do you allow injustice to go unaddressed as we live out our lives and pass away as we wait through the centuries longing for justice? We know we are your hands and feet, but we need you, God, to move us. With racial injustice, we know we are part of the problem, but we don't know what we should do. We are overwhelmed by the struggles of our own lives and lack the vision to inspire us into action. God, we need you to step into this world and into our lives and show us the way and inspire us to follow you. Where are you, God, in all this? Please help us to see you. If you are a person of color in this country, your American experience is far different from white people, and not in ways that resemble fairness or justice in any sense. And really, if you're anything other than a straight, white, able-bodied male, you know what it means to be oppressed. I'm only aware of these things because I am fortunate enough to have heard people's stories and been exposed to some of the dark truths in our society. But I compare this to the extreme privilege that I enjoy on a daily basis. This day-to-day -day gap of injustice is, is unacceptable. We have a justice system where you are better off being rich and guilty than poor and innocent. 
It's no coincidence that people of color are disproportionately affected by poverty or that the 13th Amendment, which abolishes slavery, does not apply to the incarcerated. If you're a person of color going through the justice system and you are innocent, your public defender is most likely going to persuade you to plead guilty for a sentence lesser than the one you will surely receive if you plead innocent. I recently uh, read a broad-based study looking at hundreds of thousands of traffic incidents around the country, which found that during the day, people of color are stopped by police at a much higher rate than whites are. However, after the sun had set, making it harder for police to see the skin color of the driver, this discrepancy tapered down and leveled off. Maybe that's just a coincidence. And who was more likely to have drugs in their car? It wasn't people of color. So how might these injustices shape a person or affect their livelihoods, who they turn out to be? How would it shape you and the life you end up living? Until there is justice for everyone, there is justice for no one. And so with that, please uh, hear my prayer of lament. Lord, I have to say it is hard to see where you are when uh, we look at all of the injustice in our society I think about when a black family has a child that starts driving, they have to have talk about how to properly engage with a police officer so a traffic stop doesn't end their life. When I have the talk with my kids, it'll be about sex and dating. When I speak in front of a group like this, nobody sounds surprised at how articulate I sound. When I drive by a police officer, I don't have to think about how I look, whether or not my hands are at 10 and 2, whether or not my car might look too fancy for my race, or how the officer might feel about me wearing a hoodie. When I walk by a car or apartment door, I don't have to hear the sound of a lock being clicked on the other side. When I walk by a woman on the street, I don't have to bear the sight of her clutching her bag in fear. When I'm walking down the street, I never have to watch people cross to the other side of the street in order to avoid me. And if they did, I wouldn't have to wonder if it had anything to do with my skin color. Father, where are you? This is injustice. You can't be okay with a systematic, systemic racism or oppression. When will your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? How much, how much longer must our nation endure this sickness, this disease? How are you bringing peace and comfort to those who are negatively affected by racism? Your people need you to show up. So now we'll take a moment for silent prayer.
and just we encourage you to reflect on these prayers and to approach God with injustices you you know might see in the world and please feel encouraged to name them so we'll take a moment Most lament psalms end with an expression of trust. As George outlined for us just a moment ago, trust that God is faithful, trust that God has heard us and has acted in the past and will act again. This is where we transition from our complaint to the hope and faith that God will act. I'm going to read the uh, expression of trust from Psalm 44, and it's short, as you can see, so I'm going to read it three times so you can meditate on it. Psalm 44:26. Rise up and help us. Rescue us because of your unfailing love. Rise up and help us. Rescue us because of your unfailing love. Rise up and help us. Rescue us because of your unfailing love. So my personal prayer um, and expression of trust is this. Lord, I trust that you are a God of justice and that you will bring justice to our history. Our story includes the enslavement of Africans and mistreatments of indigenous peoples, but our story is not over. I trust you to bring justice to the groups of people still affected by those unjust decisions at our country's founding. I trust that you are acting now in your church and in your people to bring justice and reconciliation. Lord, we run to you. Thank you that we can turn to you. Lord, thank you that we can put our hope in you. Thank you that justice will prevail. We might not understand now, but we know that you have a purpose in all that you do. Your glory will be magnified and a thing of wonder to behold when we see it in its fulfillment. Lord, please hasten that day and thank you that our future is secure in your hands. As you work out your plan, Lord, please be at work in us so that we have hearts that long for and minds that are open to any way that we can 
serve you in this time and in this place. So that we do not merely acknowledge with words that we see the world as broken, but better, that we, with our actions, can provide a living testimony of how you are at work to redeem this world. Heavenly Father, you are the God of all of the cosmos. You are the Alpha and the Omega. We can only see the here and now, whereas you can see the past, present, and future. We can only see the pains of the world and what we don't like about it, whereas you can also see the silver linings that you will form from them, as well as what we will learn from them and how they will shape us to be more like you. We recognize that we are to be your hands and feet. So use us, O oh Lord, as your change agents. Do not allow me to be comfortable with merely recognizing injustice, but open my eyes to see where I have been complicit so that you might use me as an ally. Help us to see the work that needs to be done and give us the courage to act. We have faith that the day will come where every wrong will be made right and every tear will be wiped dry. You are the one true perfect God and we have faith in you and thank you for where we know you will one day take us by the power of the blood of Christ.